Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, reporting for duty. So much has transpired since last we talked uh, last time. I was in some considerable pain. My tooth was just bothering me without pause. And so uh, when we left off, I was in need of a dentist, which I found. And the dentist that I found, I picked primarily because on the website, they had a little heading on their website called the Tony Hawk Experience. And I didn't even need to read on. I was like, well, if there's a Tony Hawk experience, that's the dentist for me. But it turns out that Tony Hawk had been in Savannah, had smashed his front tooth, doing some skateboarding trick, probably, needed a dentist, was recommended to this guy, went, and then wrote a nice review. So I was like, yeah, you know, good enough for Tony Hawk, good enough for me. So that I went to that dentist. The dentist uh, took uh, one look at my tooth and said, you need a root canal. And then, of course... Real panic set in. You know, you, you think you're afraid of the dentist, and then they say root canal, and you go, oh, geez. So they had to send me to another, uh, it's not a dentist, I don't know what they call them, but let's just call them a dentist. This time a lady dentist, and uh, she's the one who specializes in root canals. That's all she does all day. She does root canals. So she, I said, I don't have to be conscious for this, do I? She said, oh, yes, you do. And that was it. That was it. Terrible. That was terrible news. The good news was, I thought, I was going to have to lose a tooth, but no, they they were able to keep the tooth. I went in, I had the root canal, and it was not, it really wasn't that terrible. 
honestly, the most painful part was just them sticking needles in my gums to numb the shit. And then after that, it was just, uh, you know, a series of pushes and pulls in my mouth without any real particular pain. It went on and on and on for maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, and then they released me. And then, you know, I waited for my, my face to swell down. That took about, you know, 14 hours or so, and now I'm right back at it. My tooth doesn't hurt. I have to get a crown in a couple of weeks, but I don't think that'll be a big deal. And uh, so I was able to, uh, I was able to survive that, preserve the tooth, and head off to Austin, Texas for a few days of poker making. I befriended, sort of, um, a poker vlogger named Brad Owen. He's 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 a very popular poker vlogger, and uh, he and his partners just bought this card room in Austin, Texas. It's like owning a casino, kind of, but it's a card room, sort of different, but sort of the same. And they were doing this big sort of promotional week where, you know, kind of like a under new management type week. And he invited me out and I went out there and played poker. And I have never lost at poker harder or more quickly than I lost at poker over the last several days. It was a terrible showing on my part. I was going to say alleviated only by, and and then I was going to think of something, but it really wasn't alleviated by anything. I just lost at poker for four days straight. It was terrible. Did I have a bad time? No. I had a nice time other than literally hemorrhaging money. Had I brought more money with me than I did, I would have hemorrhaged that money as well. It was, you know, if you remember the movie The Hot Zone, which dramatized the Ebola virus, it was like that. I, I was bleeding out on the poker floor. So that wasn't good, particularly because like, I don't, really have a lot of money to lose at the moment. Well, the thing is like I keep a poker stash of money that just exists in my life that I don't need for anything else. But but even even still, you don't want to lose that money because then you won't have any money to play poker with. So from the root canal to the bleed out, uh I guess it's been a somewhat turbulent week or so. I got back to Sultry Savannah yesterday evening. And I'm, I'm realizing that I have a problem. And the problem is this. When I first started reading the remembrances of Mrs. Dean, which I think was either last time or the time before, I thought, well, this will just be a quick remembrance. And so I can do the funny Mrs. Dean voice. But now as I continue, I'm realizing like the Mrs. Mrs. Dean continues to narrate this story at the end of chapter four and then into chapter five. So do I keep doing the funny Mrs. Dean voice? I mean, it's not that funny, but it's a voice. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I have a problem with, with book readers who do voices all the time. I thought it was just going to be a quick in and out thing, you know? This is my voice for Mrs. Dean. And, 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 and then it's done. But now I'm realizing, like, I have to keep doing it. So that's, I hope that's not annoying to you. I don't know. I think I'm going to, I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to keep doing it, but maybe lessen it a little bit, you know, maybe make it a little more subtle. You'll see, oh, I have so many acting skills that are really going to be put to the test here. Um, but last time we were hearing about how Heathcliff and the young Earnshaw Hindley were constantly at it. Heathcliff managed to get Hindley's horse from him, but Hindley had been abusing Heathcliff. Like it was just a real rowdy dow. And, you know, Nobody likes a rowdy Dow among 
kids, you know, kids who can really hurt each other. I mean, uh, you know, he threw, he threw an, Hindley threw an iron at him, you know? And so we were led to believe at the end of the last episode that Heathcliff was really just a poor victim of circumstance, and uh, he was bearing it the best that he could. But Mrs. Dean, at the end of chapter 4, said, He complained so seldom, indeed, of such stirs as these, that I really thought him not vindictive. I was deceived completely, as you will hear. So, we're getting a little foreshadowing of Heathcliff's deceptive and vindictive nature. It was an excellent time to end and an excellent way to begin Chapter 5, Wuthering Heights. In the course of time, Mr. Earnshaw began to fail. You hear how it's a little more subtle? I mean, why I am not America's premier book reader is beyond me. Why I am not a vocal star really just escapes my imaginings. He had been active and healthy, yet his strength left him suddenly. And when he was confined to the chimney corner, he grew grievously irritable. A nothing vexed him, and suspected slights of his authority nearly threw him into fits. This was especially to be remarked if anyone attempted to impose upon or domineer over his favorite. He was painfully jealous, lest a word should be spoken amiss to him, something to have got into his head the notion that because he liked Heathcliff, all hated, and longed to do him an ill turn. It was a disadvantage to the lad, for the kinder among us did not wish to fret the master, so we humored his partiality, and that humoring was rich rich nourishment to the child's pride and black tempers. Still, it became in a manner necessary. Twice, or thrice, Hindley's manifestations of scorn while his father was near roused the old man to a fury. He seized his stick to strike him and shook with rage that he could not do it. At last our curate, we had a curate then who made the living answer by teaching the little Lintons and Earnshaws and farming his bit of land himself. He advised that the young man should be sent to college, and Mr. Earnshaw agreed, though with a heavy spirit, for he said, Hindley was not, and would never thrive as where he wandered. What? What did he say? He said, Hindley was not, and would never thrive as where he wandered. So wait, which? So who should go to college? The young man should be sent to college? I guess Hindley? Hindley should be sent to college. Well, that makes sense. And then, so, and then Hindley's, Hindley's a piece of shit and would never thrive wherever he goes. I hoped hardly we should have peace now. It hurt me to think the master should have been made uncomfortable by his own good deed. I fancied the discontent of age and disease arose from his family disagreements, as he would have it that it did. Really, you know, sir, it was in his sinking frame. So, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Dean is saying it. it uh, Earnshaw, who'd been, you know, healthy and stout, was suddenly brought to his knees by the squabbling in his own household. And perhaps it is so. You know, the way, the way stress in a house can discombobulate even the hardiest of constitutions. It does in my own when we squabble, the wife and I. Oh, do we squabble. We might have got on tolerably, notwithstanding, but for two people— Miss Cathy and Joseph, the servant. You saw him, I dare say, up yonder. 
He was, and is yet, most likely, the wearisomest self-righteous Pharisee that ever ransacked a Bible to rake the promises to himself and fling the curses on his neighbors. By his knack of sermonizing and pious discoursing, he contrived to make a great impression on Mr. Earnshaw, and the more feeble the master became, the more influence he gained. So, Joseph, that fucker. I mean, I didn't like Joseph before, I like him less now. You know, Mrs. Dean, let's be honest, is a little self-aggrandizing. Mrs. Dean is the hero of her own story, clearly. But she is a minor character in the lives of the others. That's an interesting thing about this, uh, well, it's not really a digression, I mean, it's backstory, but having Mrs. Dean tell the tale, I think, is kind of interesting, because Mrs. Dean, from the point of view of, let's say, Heathcliff and Kathy and and uh, Hinton and the rest of them, while a significant presence in their lives is certainly not a main character, she is an observer to the events swirling around her, and yet she places herself front and center, as we all do, in the tales of our lives. So it makes her, I, you know, let's say, I think she's a fairly unreliable narrator. I mean, I think she probably gets the broad strokes right, but she's probably missing some things, and maybe we'll get those clarified from Heathcliff himself. As time wears on, I don't know. So, uh, so she's shit-talking Joseph, and she's saying that the weaker Mr. Earnshaw got, the more powerful Joseph became. Because, you know, he's, he's, he's speaking that, that good old religion. And Earnshaw probably, you know, feels himself to be fading and dying and is clinging more closely to it. He was relentless in worrying him about his soul's concerns and about ruling his children rigidly. He encouraged him to regard Hindley as a reprobate, and night after night, he regularly grumbled out a long string of tales against Heathcliff and Catherine, always minding to flatter Earnshaw's weakness by heaping the heaviest blame on the last. What, on Catherine? Earnshaw's weak by him? Why is he mad at Catherine? Hmm, interesting. Certainly, she had ways with her such as I never saw a child take up before, and she put all of us past our patients fifty times and oftener in a day. From the hour she came downstairs to the hour she went to bed, we had not a minute's security that she wouldn't be in mischief. Her spirits were always at high water mark, her tongue always going, singing, laughing, and plaguing everybody who would not do the same. A wild, wicked slip she was, but she had the bonniest eye, and sweetest smile, and lightest foot in the parish. And, after all, I believe she meant no harm. For when, once she made you cry in good earnest, it seldom happened that she would not keep you company, and oblige you to be quiet, that you might comfort her. So, Catherine, you know, is just, uh, she's of high spirit. She's a good-natured and uh, bonny lass, and I'm uh, not sure why Joseph has his knickers all tied and a sailor's knot about it, but uh, maybe because she's a gal, you know, and gals are supposed to be demure, and Catherine is sprightly and lively and animated and fun, and Joseph can't have that, you know, good American Calvinist that he is, uh, because this is an American novel. But Joseph is a stern motherfucker, and Joseph does not like the young ladies in his charge to have independence and a lively streak.
She was much too fond of Heathcliff. The greatest punishment we could invent for her was to keep her separate from him. Yet she got chided more than any of us on his account. In play, she liked exceedingly to act the little mistress, using her hands freely and commanding her companions. She did so to me, but I would not bear slapping and ordering, and so I let her know. Well, yeah, I mean, agreed that Catherine should not be slapping and ordering the servants or anybody. Well, well, I guess we'll, all right, let's take a little break. Um, I'm just checking the condition of my tooth. Seems fine. Seems stout. And uh, we'll continue in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure, Season 3, Wuthering Heights, learning all about Catherine, who we know is haunting the house, demanding to be let in, at least in Lockwood's imaginings, and maybe more than that. But Mrs. Dean is relating what we know, or what she knows about Catherine. Now, Mr. Earnshaw did not understand jokes from his children. He had always been strict and grave with them, and Catherine, on her part, had no idea why her father should be crosser and less patient in his ailing condition than he was in his prime, because he's dying, you stupid little girl. His peevish reproofs, reproofs, reproof, reproof, that's the way it's pronounced, reproof, I'm reproofing you. His peevish reproofs wakened in her a naughty delight to provoke him. She was never so happy as when we were all scolding her at once, and she defying us with her bold, saucy look and her ready words. I mean, this is, this is essentially my daughter. Uh, she's describing my daughter, who is never so happy as when we were all scolding her at once. 
turning Joseph's religious curses into ridicule, baiting me, and doing just what her father hated most, showing how her pretended insolence, which he thought real, had more power over Heathcliff than his kindness, how the boy would do her bidding in anything, and his only when it suited his own inclination. So, something of note, I think, is that the most lively uh, Earnshaw child, the most animated Earnshaw child, the one who I think to this point is has been uh, drawn with the surest strokes, is the female Earnshaw child from Emily Bronte. And I wonder how much of Catherine Earnshaw is Emily or one of her sisters. Um, But she feels the truest, does she not? You know, Hinley's just a dick. Heathcliff is just kind of a, at the moment, a a troublesome, snarling waif, although we sort of understand his motivations. But Catherine seems to have a spirit, a true spirit spirit that, to my mind, none of the other characters quite have yet. She's a delight. Probably not a delight to live with, but a delight to read about. Probably a pain in the ass to live with. And I said she's like my daughter. My daughter is a pain in the ass to live with. Do I love her? Sure. Do I love her to death? Absolutely. Would I change a single thing about her? No. Is she a pain in the ass? Yo, yeah. After behaving as badly as possible all day, She sometimes came fondling to make it up at night. Nay, Cathy, the old man would say, I I cannot love thee. (laughs) Thou art worse than thy brother. Go, say thy prayers, child, and ask God's pardon. I doubt thy mother and I must rue that we ever reared thee. (laughs) Ah, that's what I should say to my daughter. I doubt thy mother and I must rue that we ever reared thee. That made her cry at first, and then, being repulsed, continually hardened her. And she laughed if I told her to say she was sorry for her faults and begged to be forgiven. But the hour came at last that ended Mr. Earnshaw's troubles on earth. He died quietly in his chair one October evening, seated by the fireside. A high wind blustered round the house. Well, yeah, that's what the weathering I do. Remember, it's uh, windy, windy up there. That's why they call it that. And roared in the chimney. It sounded wild and stormy, yet it was not cold, and we were all together. I, a little removed from the hearth, busy at my knitting, and Joseph reading his Bible near the table, for the servants generally sat in the house then after their work was done. Miss Cathy had been sick, and that made her still. She leant against her father's knee, and Heathcliff was lying on the floor with his head in her lap. I remember the master before he fell into a doze, stroking her bonny hair. It pleased him rarely to see her gentle, and saying, Why canst thou not always be a good lass, Cathy? And she turned up her face to his, and laughed and answered, Why cannot you always be a good man, father? But as soon as she saw him vexed again, she kissed his hand and said she would sing him to sleep. She began singing very low, 
till his fingers dropped from hers and his head sank on his breast. Then I told her to hush and not stir for fear she should wake him. We all kept as mute as mice a full half hour and should have done longer only Joseph, having finished his chapter, got up and said that he must rouse the master for prayers and bed. He stepped forward and called him by name and touched his shoulder, but he would not move. So he took the candle and looked at him. I thought there was something wrong as he set down the light, and seizing the children each by an arm, whispered them to frame upstairs and make little din. They might pray alone that evening. He had summit to do. And there's a footnote after summit to do. I think summit in Joseph's accent means something. So let's just go to the end and let's find the little the little footnotes, shall we? Let's just find them if we can. And I've almost found them here. Here we go. Almost there. Uh, go up oh go go upstairs and make little noise. He had something to do. Well, I think that's I think I yeah, that's what I said. All right. I shall bid father good night first, said Catherine, putting her arms round his neck before we could hinder her. The poor thing discovered her loss directly. She screamed out, Oh, he's dead, Heathcliff, he's dead. And they both set up a heartbreaking cry. I joined my wail to theirs, loud and bitter. But Joseph asked what we could be thinking of to roar in that way over a saint in heaven. Joseph, don't be such a dick. Joseph, you know what? When somebody dies, it's okay to be sad. Though they may be a saint in heaven, they are but worms meet here on earth, and we are allowed to miss them, Joseph. Oh, sanctimonious Joseph. Always prattling on, getting on everybody's nerves. He told me to put on my cloak and run to Gimmerton for the doctor and the parson. I could not guess the use that either would be of then. However, I went, through wind and rain, and brought one, the doctor, back with me. The other said he would come in the morning. Leaving Joseph to explain matters, I ran to the children's room. Their door was ajar. I saw they had never laid down, though it was past midnight. But they were calmer, and did not need me to console them. The little souls were comforting each other with better thoughts than I could have hit on. No parson in the world ever pictured heaven so beautifully as they did in their innocent talk. And while I sobbed and listened, I could not help wishing we were all there safe together. So, Mrs. Dean, at the conclusion of chapter 5, wishes they were all dead. (laughs) Uh, You know... I I do like the different ways of thinking uh, between the 19th century, the 18th century, and our own, the different mores, the different experiences, the different ways of thought, the different ways people look at life and death. You know, enough like our own that it's recognizable, but... Oftentimes, there are moments where you think, well, that's just not at all the way we would behave. A parent saying to his child, I'm incapable of loving you, (laughs) 
we, your mother and I, rue the day of your birth, we've heard these thoughts expressed before, not only in uh, Wuthering Heights, but in Jude the Obscure and in Frankenstein. There seems to be a running theme of parents regretting the birth of their children. In Jude's case, it was an aunt, but it had the same, has the same effect. Everybody just wishing their offspring were dead or had never been born to begin with. You know, it's. I I just don't feel like in modern literature you're gonna you're gonna read that that much unless the character is meant to be the most vile of beings. And in in the books that we're reading, that's not true. It's not true of Mr. Earnshaw. It wasn't true for Jude's aunt. It's not true for Frankenstein. These are these are sentiments that just don't get expressed today. Now, as a young parent myself, when my children were born, I certainly said aloud and to anybody who would listen, I hate my baby, uh, which was true. My babies were terrible babies. They would not sleep. But I never said, I wish you hadn't been born. That, that wasn't the case. It's just that I wish you would sleep. And certainly when they were old enough to communicate and be people and express themselves in tones that didn't involve just mewling and vomiting, you know, my heart softened to them considerably. It's just different, you know, it's just, and, 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 and maybe the, the sort of, the heart of the matter is the same. You know, when Earnshaw says, I'm incapable of loving you, clearly that's not true. I mean, in his last moments, what, he, what is he doing? He's stroking her hair. But since Dr. Spock came along and told us how to raise our kids, uh, we have learned it's probably best not to tell the children that we hate them. It's probably best not to tell the children that we hate them because that will cause some scarring that may persist into adulthood. And then the next thing you know, they're chopping up people and freezing their body parts uh, for consumption. So I think we've learned something about parenting in the 200 or so years since the span of time that we've been reading books. Really, 300 years. No, 200. So yeah, we'll leave it there. It's fun. It's a good tale. I'm, I'm hoping that Mrs. Dean's part in all of this uh, leaves us soon. But it is, it is an interesting literary convention that I don't think we would do again, or that we would that we would see too often in, in modern literature, which is the the narrator of the tale sort of giving way to another narrator of the tale for long, long, long stretches. I mean, maybe it's still done. I don't know, but we saw that in Frankenstein, and now we're seeing it in Wuthering Heights. Just a different way of approaching the form, more successfully executed, I would say, here, but still. Uh, different. So, with that, I will retire for the week. I look forward to engaging all of you again on another funny-voiced episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu.
This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.